So there's two readings today, you'll see. Um, and as I read them, have a think about how they relate to the virtue of frankness, which is what we're hearing about today. Proverbs 28, verse 23. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favour rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. And from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Well, uh, when you first become a Christian, uh, it's a great, you know, obviously a life-transforming moment, but then you have the rest of your life to live. And the rest of your life is largely about forming Christian character. You do this by practicing what are called the Christian virtues. And there are many Christian virtues. For example, you, you try and practice chastity, as opposed to lust, temperance, as opposed to gluttony, charity, as opposed to greed, diligence, as opposed to sloth, patience, as opposed to wrath, kindness, as opposed to envy, humility, as opposed to pride. In fact, there are, there are many Christian virtues. There's not really an official list anywhere that you can find if you go looking for it. These are characteristics we get about how to live a good life from the Bible, from the Proverbs. For example, the wisdom literature talks about how to live a wise life. But most um, vividly we get this in the life of Jesus. When we look at him, we see what it means to live uh, with, with character, with with, um, with the ultimate kind of human, um, the ultimate human life, what you would call um, human flourishing in its true sense. Virtue is not just about making um, moral decisions. It's not just knowing rules. It's not really about that at all, actually. It's, it's about your character changing from the inside so that it becomes part of who you are. That's what it means to develop Christian character and to develop virtue. It's to change from within. So I'll give you a story that explains what I'm talking about. What were you doing on Thursday, January the 15th, 2009? Can you remember? Probably not. Well, it was just a normal day, um, and if we cast our minds over to New York City where this, this story occurred, an event that some people called a miracle, but I don't think it really, maybe it was a kind of a miracle, but not really. There was more to it than that. 
US Air Airways Flight 1549 left LaGuardia Airport about 3.26 p.m., uh, bound for Charlotte, North, North Carolina. And the captain of the flight was a Chesley Sullenberger III, known as Sully. He did all the usual flight checks and everything was fine in his Airbus A320. But something unexpected occurred two minutes after takeoff. The aircraft ran straight into a flock of Canada geese. Now, it's bad enough when one goose gets caught in your engine, but when a flock gets caught, you're in trouble. All of a sudden, the engines were badly damaged and lost their power. And at this point, the plane was headed over the Bronx, which is a built-up area, one of the most built-up areas of New York. So the risk was that the plane would go down and not only kill the passengers, but kill everyone on the ground as well. So Sully and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions instantly. They didn't have very long to think about this, if they were going to have any chance of saving anyone on board or on the ground. They couldn't use the local airports. I'd worked that out. It was too dangerous. They would have to fly over houses, and they might not even make it. They couldn't land on the road. There were too many obstacles and cars. And their only option was the Hudson River. Now, it's very difficult, so I've been told, to crash land on water, especially with a plane of that size. If you get the angle of the plane slightly wrong, the whole thing flips over and explodes or breaks apart. So they snapped into action. In about three minutes, Sully and his co-pilot had to shut down the engines, then adjust the speed so that the plane would glide the right distance without power. He was uh, also a gliding instructor, so he, ha he had the kind of training and knowledge to know how to do this really well. They had to adjust the angle of the nose of the plane to maintain speed. They disconnected the autopilot and overrid the flight management system. They had activated the ditch system to seal the vents and the valves to make the plane waterproof. They had to glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it would come down facing south going along the flow of the river. Then they had to straighten the plane up so that on landing the plane would, would, would be exactly level so that the wings wouldn't sink under the water and it would just land perfectly balanced. And finally they had to get the nose back up again but not too far up and land straight and flat on the water. And as many of you know, because of a very famous story, they achieved all of this. And it was amazing, and apparently people were looking out of their office windows and seeing this plane just land on the water in the river. All of the passengers got off safely. And Sully himself walked up and down the aisle a couple of times to check that, to make sure everyone was off the plane. And once in, he was in the life raft, he even took off his shirt and gave it to a person who was freezing cold because it was winter. Now, you might think this is a miracle, and certainly that's the language that the news gave to this story. But this is where we get a spectacular demonstration of what we're talking about when we're talking about building character. It is the power of right habits. For Sully, it was the result of many years of training, thousands and thousands of hours of experience. And this is kind of what virtue is about. It's what happens when you make a thousand small choices requiring a lot of effort and concentration. Then on the, the next 1,001st time, you actually instinctively make the right, make the right virtuous choice.
It seems to be automatic, but it's not automatic because it's something that has built in you over time. Now, the problem is whenever we talk about something like virtue is that what people hear is something different. They hear, they make two mistakes. Firstly, they can hear rule-keeping. Oh, here we go, another sermon about keeping rules, being a good person. And it's amazing how often people think that um, what they hear in church is about being a good person, but that's not what we're talking about. And secondly, they can think that um, the idea of developing character that is not instinctively who you are is actually going to change you into a worse person. It's going to make you boring. It's going to... Because some people think that who I am instinctively, the way I've been born, that is, that is the ultimate me. And to change, to develop some other character will make me less of a person. But that's not right either. Being a Christian is not about rule-keeping. It's about developing character. We are called to see ourselves as as having a a role in God's drama where the lead character in the drama is Jesus and we're to follow him in that drama and develop his characteristics. And when we learn to do this, what we learn is to be fully human, to flourish. Um, This is what it means to develop Christian virtue. And the best thing about all of this is is that um, God does not leave us alone to do it so that we're working really hard through our life, making the right decisions, trying to be virtuous. But he meets us in his grace and he gives us his spirit so that we can develop this characteristic in his power. He doesn't leave us as we are and he helps us and transforms us from within by the power of his spirit. And so that's what it means to develop Christian virtue. It's to live your life making a thousand small Christ-like decisions guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the everyday of life so that you develop the characteristics of Jesus. Now, I had the idea to do this series uh, on unpopular Christian virtues because one of my favourite radio shows is The Minefield on ABC Radio National. Um, and uh, they did this series called Unpopular Virtues, and what I realised when I was listening to it was the virtues they were talking about could be called Christian virtues as well. And so I thought that would make a great thing to talk about, these, the, kind of, the virtues of the Christian life that are actually a bit unpopular in our world. And so we're going to look at, over the series, frankness today, steadfastness, restraint, and forbearance. Um, and what the radio show really showed was, um, you can listen to it as a podcast, was that virtues are a little bit complicated to think about. There's, there's lots of ways you can get it wrong. Um, there, there, there's, there's complexity there. For example, if you just think about frankness for a minute, um, is it really unpopular? I mean, in some parts of the world now, in some a- aspects of life, um, isn't it uh, seen as a good thing to be forthright? and to speak your mind, but is that really the virtue of frankness? So that's kind of what we've got to unpack. Aristotle, the famous philosopher, he he developed his understanding of frankness by comparing it or contrasting it with flattery, saying it's the opposite of flattery. And that is exactly what the proverb does that we looked at to start off the reading, to kind of intro the John 4 reading. Whoever rebukes a person 
will in the end gain favour, because the, the assumption here I'm making is that to rebuke a person, you have to have the virtue of frankness. You have to speak truthfully and honestly to someone. Um, and it says, whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favour rather than the one who just has a flattering tongue. In the message translation, it says, in the end, serious reprimand, reprimand is appreciated far more than boot-licking flattery. That's good, boot-licking, yeah. Well, let's look at the life of Jesus and see what frankness is all about in his life um, and specifically in the story of the, of the woman at the well. Frankness is a lot more than just being honest. It's a lot more than just speaking your mind. In the story of the woman at the well, we see uh, Jesus being in Samaria in the middle of the day trying to get some water from the well. And he has an encounter with a Samaritan woman. And there is a bit of cultural awkwardness here that we have to note. He's a man, she's a woman. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. And she's there in the middle of the day, which you didn't normally do because it was hot. Usually people waited till the cool of the day which indicated that she probably was somebody who was on the fringe of society and she probably went when nobody else was there. So these are two people who didn't usually associate types of people. Think Sunni and Shia, maybe, or think Collingwood and Carlton supporters, or I don't know. You know, there's a clash here of cultures. We find out why she had some of this shame. Perhaps she'd been abused by several men or she had children by several men. There's a conversation that they have about the many men in her life, the, the five husbands that Jesus is later. And in this story, both Jesus and the woman are frank with each other. And I just want to highlight a few, a few of these moments when there's frankness. The first frank words actually come from the woman. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And she says, Frankly, I mean, she doesn't say frankly, but I'm adding that in just so you know what I'm talking about. You are a Jew and I'm, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans, says a passage. Now, sometimes at North Detroit Primary School where Leo goes, Banana Man, you know, who came in before. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, sometimes at the end of school, we're standing around the parents and um, one of the things I notice often in our playground after school with the parents is a bit of the kind of um, the gathering of cultures. So we, we have a number of um, um, kids who are from African backgrounds and, and Muslim backgrounds. And, and so I notice that the Muslim mums often standing on their own and all the, the Gorman mums standing together talking to each other. Yeah, so you know, you know. And so, and so I, sometimes I go over to the, um, to, to the Muslim mums and say hello and shake their hand, which is probably a cultural faux pas. But anyway, sometimes, look, and usually it's good, it's, I think it's an important thing to do. And I, I tell you what, it would be a bit of a shock if one of them said to me, you are a white Christian bloke and I am a Sudanese woman. How can you say hello to me? Um, uh, being frank is a bit of a messy affair. You have to be vulnerable. You have to expose yourself to rejection. And, and so this awkwardness, kind of like what I experience in the playground, it sort of happens in this, in this dialogue. Verse 10, Jesus says, 
Frankly, well, he doesn't say that, but if you knew the gift of God, who, who it is that asks you for a drink, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Being frank is about boldness, isn't it? About speaking the truth into someone's life. Jesus points her to the truth of God. So the woman does ask for living water. Then Jesus says in verse 13, Frankly, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the goal of Jesus' frankness to this woman is to bring life to her. They move on to have another frank conversation about her the pain of her life, the relationship status of having many husbands. This is a raw and difficult conversation. Then in verses 19 to 24, Jesus points her one more time to the truth and has a frank conversation about the fact that Samaritans are not worshipping the true God and that they are wrong in their understanding of faith and spirituality and that really salvation is from the Jews. It's a pretty big thing to say. He's only just met her. So He's being so frank that he's saying that her whole religious framework is wrong. Sounds very confrontational. But then later in verses 39 to 42, the kind of conclusion of our story, we see that the encounter was in fact life-giving. She came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and she went on and evangelised her town and others came to believe as well. True, virtuous, Christ-like frankness is powerful because it leads to a harvest of fruit. People's lives are changed. People are brought to face the hard truth. They're brought to new life. They experience a kind of evolution in themselves. And this is why if you frankly rebuke a person, which we'll talk a bit more about later, how you could do that, or speak some hard truths into a person's life, you will in the end gain favour from that person. You might not in the immediate, it might take a year or two or five or ten years for them to realise and come back to you and say thank you. Maybe you'll never see the fruit. But if you, all you ever do is hold back or never say anything or just flatter people, you'll end up going down a pathway of shallowness. So let's now, okay, we looked at the Jesus story and let's just, I want to kind of make sort of three calls about what frankness is about. Three, maybe four? Three, I think three. So Christian frankness, the virtue of, is about truth-telling. But let's just think about that for a second. It's about speaking the truth of God into someone's life. It's about boldly bringing wisdom to a given situation. And so being frank is not, I'm going to use the code of BS. Do you know what I mean by BS? I think you know what I mean. Why do, why do I say that? Because sometimes people speak at you, don't they? And they tell you stuff. Um, think of the Donald Trump kind of thing, you know, I'm going to forthrightly speak, just waffle to you, to try and gain control over you or power over you. And I don't really have any regard for the truth. Um, Frankness doesn't mess with the facts. It lacks obfuscation. So simple honesty, if you just think about honesty on its own, that's about 
avoiding lying, isn't it? So that's not frankness in itself. It's actually possible to be honest and then dodge some truth, isn't it? Like you, you answer a question like a politician might, but you are selective with the truth without actually lying. That's not being frank. Frankness is telling the truth in a way that adds an, a sense of unreservedness, saying it as it is. But secondly, Christian frankness is motivated by love. So we saw that in, the, in Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman. There's a driver of love. Now, sometimes people say, free speech, free speech. I demand to say what I truly believe and you shouldn't hold me back. Even if my opinion is controversial, even if my opinion is going to hurt somebody, I should have the right to say what I believe. But that's not frankness. If someone's bold speech is being used for self-protection or self-preservation or to build up one's kind of political cause to control another person, that's not virtuous Christian frankness either. That's being self-serving. You want to be frank and you want to be constructive at the same time. You want to be sensitive. Otherwise, you're just being blunt. So that's not the same thing, is it? Frankness is not being blunt. Frankness actually can go with this concept of cushioning. So you give a person a series of statements which builds them up. If, you, if you're going to be frank with someone, you encourage them. You might even vulnerably share your own weakness, and then you include, after the cushion, the frank, hard truth. And that's not manipulation, that's just, that's just speaking the truth in love. It's not just the information you convey, but it's how you convey it. Cushioning is especially important when you think about power difference. So if a parent is speaking a hard truth to a child, you don't want to destroy them, do you? I remember this was a transformative moment in my life. One time when I was a kid, I wanted to bake a cake for my mum. So I got up early and I thought to myself, what do you need to bake a cake? Flour, water, eggs, I think. Didn't use a recipe. So I got some flour out of the cupboard, some eggs and some water, mixed it all together in a bowl, put it in the oven. What I didn't realise was that the flour had weasels in it. Weevils, sorry, not weasels. <laughs> Weevils. Weasels. That would be terrible. Weevils. And now, the weird thing is my mum knew that there were weevils in the flour and she didn't do anything about it, but you know, that's, that's another story. Nevertheless, my concoction turned into a hard rock of flour matter, you know, and weevils all baked inside. And I proudly brought it to her in bed. Here's my cake, you know, like a... And she said, what's that? What'd you make that for? The flower's got weevils in it. I was crushed. She spoke frankly, without cushioning. I've never baked a cake since. <laughs> but if you have power over someone, maybe you, you are their manager or their boss in the workplace, um, be careful how you speak the truth. 
Being frank doesn't have to mean smashing people with a sledgehammer. Timing is part of it. So sometimes in church, we have a bad um, sense of timing with our frankness in church community. For example, when I first started preaching, it was a shock to me that you would literally finish the sermon, the last song would happen, and someone come up to you and go, see, the problem with your sermon was dot, 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 or they'd say, why did you wear that shirt today? I was so distracted. Or they'd say, I was watching the clock and you went for 32 minutes. Now, come on, you know. And so there was this kind of desire to be frank with the preacher straight after. And, you know, if you, after you preach, you're feeling it's sort of like the adrenaline rush and then you're feeling exhausted. And it's not a good time to be hearing this stuff. It's okay, I can cope. Feel, feel free if you want to tell me stuff at the end. Of it. But the thing is, I've no doubt that as Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well... He saw her as a loved child of God. She was not a foreigner to be controlled. She was not just a person to be evangelized. She was a person made in the image of God. Speaking the difficult truth into her life gave her the opportunity to experience healing and transformation. So before you speak frankly to another person, check your motivation. Are you being motivated by love? The proverb says that whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favour rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. So if your frankness to another person involves rebuking them for their sin, which is very hard to do, isn't it? In the end you will gain favour. Because you are speaking to them in love. You're building them up. You're giving them life. And that leads me to the third thing about what Christian frankness is about. It's about being vulnerable. You put yourself out there to be critiqued, don't you? In fact, both parties enter into this vulnerable relationship, the speaker and the receiver. Virtuous frankness involves acting against your own interests because you know if you say a frank word to another person, they could come back at you with judgment and criticism. You're opening yourself up to be rejected for the greater purpose, the higher purpose of life and love. Every time I challenge another person about being too busy and that they need to make time in their life for their family or their friends rather than just work, 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 more time for their church community, I'm always a little bit wary of the fact that I could apply the same thing to my own life. But this is good. Being willing to, to offer constructive criticism in, the, in a hard word out of love is about the culture in a Christian community of iron sharpening iron. Frankness, it seems, is not simply truthfulness, but the willingness to place yourself in a position of vulnerability to open yourself to judgment by exposing and exposing yourself to the truth. So if you have people with whom you are accountable to, then you will know what this vulnerability is like. You invite people to be frank to you. Um, The the fisherman group in our church is an accountability group of of blokes that meet up every second week to to be vulnerable with each other um, and to speak frankly into each other's life. And they invite each other to do it. So it's not like there's one person controlling the other blokes, but it's 
each person taking it in turns to ask a series of questions about how you're living your life. Have you been loving the people around you? Have you been reading your Bible? Those kind of questions. Have you been lustful even? Very personal, vulnerable questions. This is very powerful. This is, this is life transforming this kind of stuff. Everyone's volunteering to do this in that group. So to be able to speak frankly, you need to develop a culture uh, in yourself, humility. And also, if you want to be in a church community that's doing this, you need to be humble yourself if someone speaks to you, frankly. The Bible actually says we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. So being frank isn't about spouting off instantly, on, you know, impulsively. It's okay to take your time to think about something, to pray about it, to go away, to not, to not just spout off in ignorance. You should not assume you know a person's situation. So often people say to me they, they know another person's situation and they just don't. So much judgment is, is, is directed at other people in ignorance. You don't really know what's going on for another person, what their struggles are what their story is, what is their life situation, who else are they talking to. You don't know any of those things. On the other hand, you should not let those questions hold you back. If you think that you really need to say something to someone, go in carefully, gentle, motivated by love. Use a sharp scalpel rather than a blunt axe. And if you feel your own buttons are being pressed by this situation that you want to speak into, just be careful again. Being virtuously frank in a Christ-like way is not something you can do online as well. So many people say they, 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 they say what they want to say bluntly, you know, in social media or an email because they're hiding behind a screen. And that's you're not really being that very vulnerable, are you? You're not making yourself really physically available. You're not reading the person's body language. Be careful what you say in an email. Ask yourself, can I say what I'm typing face-to-face to the person? Am I going to follow this up? Am I going to speak to them in person? If you think about it, the reason why we avoid the virtue of frankness is because of the idol of popularity, the idol of self. We would rather be, rather not be exposed to criticism. We would rather be loved and, and popular and accepted than to potentially be rejected. We don't want to have to think about our own lives, so why be frank to another person? And I was thinking about how with a Christian... Um, without, without, when Christians tell other people about Jesus, one of the things that holds us back is lacking the virtue of frankness because why would you know bringing up another person's salvation the need for forgiveness of their sins is, requires the virtue of frankness and so we hold back it requires vulnerability doesn't it um, you worry about being rejected nevertheless if we want to be people who are developing Christ-like character we have to develop the virtue, the unpopular Christian virtue of frankness. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Our community, the church, the body of Christ, should be characterized by the way of Jesus, the way of love, 
the way of truth, the way of life. We don't want a church that's characterized by secrets and lies. We don't want to be ourselves a person characterized by secrets and lies. If you want to develop frankness in your life, if you want to promote love, truth, and life in our community, start by asking God to change you. And then open yourself up to others so that they can speak into your life. Be humble and vulnerable to others first. Invite people to be frank to you. It might feel painful, but it's actually about growing in Christ-likeness. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we pray for that kind of vulnerability with each other, that honesty, that life-giving, truth-telling in our community so that we can build each other up, not tear each other down. We pray that we would not be defensive, but we will actually receive people's words into our life, take them seriously. And thank you that you have met us in your spirit, that you are changing us each day. Amen.